Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. This episode is brought to listeners in part by the Entrepreneurs Organization and the local chapter in Toronto. Are you a founder of a growing business? EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. EO members are provided with a continuous cycle of peer-to-peer networking opportunities, monthly forum meetings, and world-class learning events. For more information on joining EO, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. And Iristel, offering better Canadian telecom. With Iristel Business Solutions, companies can streamline communications to reduce complexity and give employees better resources. Visit iristel.com slash solutions for more information. That's I-R-I-S-T-E-L dot com slash solutions for more. So have you ever thought of getting a tattoo but were too afraid of inking something permanent, so to speak? Tyler Hanley is the co-founder and CEO of Inkbox, Canada's most heavily trafficked Shopify store and a company on a mission to allow people around the world to express themselves without regret. In this episode, we talk about the creation of an entirely new business category, Inkbox's Kickstarter success, finding the right venture capital firm and how to vet different prospective venture partners, experimenting with customer acquisition channels, how to spot Instagram falsehoods, the dangers of ego, and much, much more. So without further delay, here is my great and very entertaining conversation with Tyler Hanley. Probably the most obvious place to start is this sort of invention of a new product category altogether, right? Like where does this go from an idea to something that you figured you could scale? That's a great question. Um, you know, how does something uh, like this, a new type of tattoo, go from ideation to implementation? As is often said in, in entrepreneurship circles, uh, an idea is worth nothing without execution. Mm-hmm. And in, in our case, the execution really started from not understanding what we were doing <laughs> off the start and surrounding ourselves with people who, who I wouldn't I wouldn't say they knew what they were doing in this respect, but could help us think through the problems in the right way. Um, so the idea for Inkbox initially came from really just wanting this product. I mean, we wanted a tattoo that looked real, that looked authentic, that um, could make us feel cool and could give us confidence. But a, a tattoo that we didn't have to live permanently with. And that's not to say that we don't like permanent tattoos. I mean, my brother and I, who are co-founders, have about 12, 15 tattoos between us. I mean, we were, we were tattooed. It's just there were types of designs we wanted we knew we wouldn't want forever. And we couldn't believe that with something as ubiquitous as tattoos in our generation, there wasn't a middle ground. You know, it was either the temporary tattoos that you had as a kid, which, you know, can feel cheap. And as an adult, they're 
you know, they're fun in certain circles and they're, they're kind of kitschy and fun, but they don't really give you that kind of authenticity and, uh, it, it, feel, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel real in any sense, and that's not to say that it needs to feel like a real tattoo. It just needs to feel um, like like part of you, not a sticker on your skin. Mm-hmm. And and so you're either stuck with that or permanent tattoos. And so how is there no no middle ground? That really blew our minds. So we did a bunch of research, and um, we started to look at henna and how henna functions in the skin, and um, it, we kind of drilled down from there, um, and then I guess across. So you know henna has a certain function in the skin and it stains your skin and everyone's familiar with it. Um, but the science is actually pretty fascinating because it actually binds to your collagen on a molecular level. And so we wanted to find something else out there in nature that did this to your skin. And, uh, sure enough, we came across this fruit that grows in the jungles of uh, Central America and certain areas of South America and, and started importing some of this fruit. There's this, this fruit, you know, how do we leverage it to create this product that we want? So, um, we looked at the active ingredient, got some chemists involved. Um, and so that's an example of something we had no experience in. We were not chemists. We we're not scientists. Um, I guess say we were well-versed enough in science that we knew the path to take, but we didn't really know any of the, the, the particularities. And so we got this, this, these chemists to identify the active molecule, the active compound, and then decide how to extract that, you know, what's that process. And then how do we leverage that to create this new type of, of tattoo that you can wear. That's some interesting early R and D. Like how long was that entire process? Uh, about a year from, from ideation to, uh, launching our first product on Kickstarter. Wow. So are you hiring these chemists sort of like on contract? Like how did that work? Yeah. Initially it was just on contract. I mean, we started with, we had 10,000 from a friend and another couple thousand dollars of our own money. And so, you know, we took a pretty big shot on him. It was about five grand of that money. So it was anywhere from like 25 to 50% of our, our, our first capital, um, on a chemist, but yeah, it was just a contract off the start. So, okay. So you mentioned the crowdfunding, so let's start there. So about a year of R and D and then the crowdfunding push on Kickstarter, was it? Yes. Okay. What was that experience like for you guys? Kickstarter is uh, an amazing platform. It's a double-edged sword, though. It can be, uh, <laughs> it could be uh, tragic in certain ways as well. I mean, we've all heard of brands trying to to launch on Kickstarter and either failing their, to meet their goals or failing to deliver. Uh, for us, it was wonderful because we didn't have any access to capital to, to, to venture capital. I knew no investors. We don't come from money. I had none of those connections. I didn't know a lot of people in the city at the time either because I had just moved back to Toronto. It gives you a platform if you don't know anyone to get out there and get exposure. So for us, it was about validating that this is something people wanted to wear. And we angled the entire campaign around just the validation. So we set out to sell $20,000 worth. And I think it was two seventy-five dollars at the end. So without any marketing budget, it was just us just hustling to get some press for it. If the goal is $20K and then you raise $275, correct? Yeah. Was there some sort of like level of anxiety that came with that sort of that number? Like not only did you guys hit your targets, you, you completely shattered it. And now you've got major validation and there's a this sort of pressure that comes with, okay, so this idea is now in demand. Um, we've got a potential business that can scale. Like there's all kinds of other you know baggage that comes with that. Um, was there any pressure there for you guys? Yeah. Well, it definitely gets your mind running. That's for sure. I would say overall it was excitement because once it's validated, you don't care about the 
the, 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 the follow through on it. You're just like, this is awesome. We're on to something. (laughs) And, and, and that's the, the, the best feeling. Actually, that's, that, that that feeling is very hard to replicate. And, um, you know, now that the company's a lot larger, it, 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 you kind of, that's nostalgic, that feeling. Uh, and Hmm. we don't chase it, but I'm assuming there's people out there who try to chase that feeling again and again, that initial validation is wonderful. So uh, yeah, there's a a lot of anxiety. Like I said, it's double-edged sword because awesome. You you hit your target, but then when you go way over your target, you 10 exit, that's a whole different ball game in terms of your fulfillment. So it kind of screwed us in a sense because we had uh, deadlines which we're confident in fulfilling these, these products, but that got pushed way back because it meant we couldn't do any of it by hand. We had to fully automate uh, well, as fully as you can automate the manufacturing process. What does the process of automation or automating manufacturing look like? Like you guys don't have experience obviously in this arena or do you? Um, so it's sort of kind of a new thing for you guys, right? Yeah, we don't come from this background either. Um, our product uh, is not turnkey. So and, and you can't just go to a facility and be like, Hey, make this for me. We'll be like, yeah, awesome. I'll do it. Uh, it's not like that. So it, it spans multiple uh, industries. So, uh, you know, we had to kind of piecemeal together a, a network of manufacturers that we can uh, work with to produce parts for us and then actually finish in house. So in terms of like understanding how to manufacture, <laughs> honestly, it was just, we looked at an industry that could make something like ours like something similar. So we found the most similar type of product to what we were thinking the product would look like, mm-hmm. and then just started finding the people who made the machines for them first. So, you know, like what machine makes these things? And then eventually we came across um, some manufacturers uh, of the machines themselves. And when we talked to them, they hooked us up with the, the contract manufacturers. It was difficult for us too, because we, we had no experience and and we had nothing to speak to i mean we only had this these seven thousand backers on kickstarter but you know how does that make us trustworthy as a partner what was that product that you mentioned that was sort of similar to yours uh the the partners yeah band-aids bandages (laughs) okay interesting so 275 at a kickstarter fast forward a few years later give me a sense of of where the company is at today yeah we're a vertically integrated facility in downtown Toronto. We have about 80 employees. Uh, We do all all of our own manufacturing fulfillment, pick, pack, fill. And we have a product team, a growth team, an activations team, uh, four-person executive team. And we've surrounded ourselves with a cadre of uh, advisors uh, from companies who have similarities to us and who have kind of seen the movie before, we like to say. and really solid investors. We closed a Series A round four or five months ago. And that was a $13 million USD round and allowed us to yeah, really start hiring these, these executive team members and really start pushing to the next stage of the company. For those that are interested in, in just understanding how to go about finding the right Series A lead, what advice or what could you share on that front? I mean, sometimes you're not in a position to choose. Not everyone has the benefit of being offered multiple term sheets and being able to negotiate between the between those and, and getting terms you you think are agreeable to you, but also getting partners that you feel confident working with um, through through highs and lows. Uh, for us, we've always made a made it a habit of ours to surround ourselves with good people. I like to think that I'm a good judge of character. You know, when you hear people say that, it's usually like a, a segue into them not being a good judge of character. <laughs> I think if you have good character and you pride yourself on having good character, you're probably a good judge of it as well. So 
um, it's kind of been born out of our own uh, character and, and trying to find investors who, who match our character. And, and in, in Maveron's case, they're people who care about the world beyond just the money too. And they care about creating brands that really affect people's lives in positive ways. And so some of the other portfolio companies, they had really spoke to that and their values. And when we back channeled and referenced a, a lot of the other uh, portfolio companies of theirs, which is key when you're raising money, always talk to other founders, not just the ones who've had good experiences too, but the ones who've had, who've had poor experiences, not necessarily just with the investors themselves, but um, with their company, you know, they might've gone through some tough times. Um, and the true nature of your investors really comes out in those times. Are they trying to help you or are they trying to get an early exit? Yep. Um, and so we are confident that a fund like Maveron would be with, with us through thick and thin. Cause you know, it's, it's not always going to be great. What were the stories? Like, do, do you have stories of other founders that you spoke to, um, some horror stories or, or things that you had to look out for? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the one I hear most often is when you're hot, you're hot when you're not, you're not. And so when you're hot, investors will spend a lot of time with you and and your, your partners in particular at the fund that is invested in you will spend a lot of time with you and really focus on your business to try to help you, you know, open the Rolodex, get the right intros, give you the right, you know, help you surround yourself with the right, with the right advisors and uh, yeah, just basically give you the best advice. But when you're not doing well, uh, and if that's prolonged, they might drop off and they don't really focus on you and they kind of just let you rot. What did you guys learn in terms of the pitching experience? For us, it was very iterative, I would say. I would always iterate on the deck and the story after each pitch. Another key thing that we did in our, our Series A process was a lot of back channeling uh, after the pitch. So I had my early advisors who would and, and, and investors who would uh, reach out to investors at, at new funds I was pitching after I had, had pitched them to, uh, yeah, just get a little bit more color on how the pitch went, what they thought was strong about it, what they thought was weak about it. It really helped to have a couple, I would call throwaway pitches at the start too with funds that, you know, you're pretty sure they're a long shot to invest in you, but you might as well just get it out of the way anyways and, and pitch them and get their feedback because you, you get a lot of different feedback and you actually start to hone in on the feedback that actually matters and the stuff that's just coming from their perspective, which, you know, might not be a perspective you actually agree with. Yeah. So how do you and, differentiate between that? Like when you're getting a boatload of feedback from these guys, how do you know how to filter through the stuff that you're going to hold on to versus the stuff that you can discard? That's, that's a really good question. It's really difficult, especially when you do it for the first time, like in our seed round, I remember leaving very confused <laughs> after pitches being like, man, they told me this thing. Now these people told me this thing, but I think as you get more experience, you know, your market better than anyone else. Right. So you, you become pretty good at sussing out and you talk to so many people and you talk about it all the time that you've heard, you eventually hear almost everything. Uh, so you can suss out when people are just saying the generic stuff and when people are actually looking into it deeply enough or from a different enough perspective that warrants your, your, I guess your interest in that. So what was some of the positive feedback that you were getting versus the not so positive, let's say, um, actually not, not so positive, but more like constructive feedback that you'd not heard it before that you thought, okay, like that's important for the business model going forward. Like let's hang on to that constructive criticism because it's valuable. Like any examples there? Yeah. Ours was interesting because I think ours was kind of the same. Our, our, our strengths and our weakness were very much the same thing to a lot of people. 
that and that was the vision. So the vision that we have, and which I'm not going to go into full detail about in this conversation, it's pretty secret. But mm-hmm. the full vision we have is it's really enticing, and it's it's a, you know it's a huge market we're playing into, and we have a very unique angle to really become a huge consumer brand in tattoos. And but it hasn't been done before, and it's a market that's very unconsolidated, and uh, you know we're first time founders, so having this bold vision sold a lot of investors like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so excited about this. It got them really pumped about it. But the, 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 the flip side of that was some investors were like, I don't think that you can do this, not just you, but I don't think it's possible. <laughs> so, um, and if they don't have conviction around the market, then what, the, that's, what's the point. <laughs> hmm. And, and so I think that was an interesting one for us. It's not like a SaaS product where we can say, this is our total addressable market. Here's how much we can play into it. And here's what we're doing that differentiates us, differentiates us from competitors. And here's our validation to date that, that shows that, yes, this is possible to beat them here. And this is our, this is what we can expect of it. And who's here, here's who would acquire us. Ours had none of that. It was like, here's this very nebulous total addressable market, um, you know, based on touchy feely aspects. And, you know, we had the validation of course, uh, and, and that, that goes two ways, validation in the product, but also validation in our execution of it. Um, it you know, they, they've had the investors invest in you. And when you're going up for Series A, you've, you've done enough to that point that they can get a pretty ga- good gauge on how you manage your company and manage your team and stuff like that. Okay, so on the validation point, you also had um, these statistics, right, coming at you from the demand side. So somewhere along the line, I came across a number that you guys were Canada's highest traffic Shopify store with about a million visitors to the site each month. That number's probably gone up since then, right? Yeah, it's gone up quite a bit. Um, but yeah, we're, we're definitely Canada's most traffic Shopify store. I'd, I'd wager that we're one of the largest sellers in Canada on Shopify, but they don't give you that data, so I have no idea. <laughs> but that's got a peak investor interest, just that stat alone. Yeah, that stat's pretty cool. I think one of the big stats, it's not, not a stat, but one of, the, the, one of my opening points in, in pitching was always, Think of a tattoo brand. <laughs> Nobody knows, right? Nobody knows. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and so it just shows opportunity. Let's get into the weeds a little bit on the media buying stuff. So I know you guys are heavily entrenched in sort of what you call product channel fit, finding the right acquisition channels for uh, Inkbox. Facebook and Instagram are the obvious mm-hmm. two that are probably big for you guys. They're big visual channels. Probably Google's mixed in there. What are some of the other channels that you guys have been playing with? Yeah, we're always experimenting. Pinterest has been new for us. Uh, we've been on it for quite a few months now, but it, it's still in its infancy from a platform perspective for marketing. Uh, for us, it's driven a lot of traffic uh, that doesn't really convert in the first purchase. So you, some channels you have to treat as just top of funnel traffic drivers, and then you convert down down the funnel somewhere else. Uh, Pinterest is very much top of funnel in that respect because people uh-huh. are kind of just browsing um, for inspiration. Uh, it's Snapchat we've been playing with. As well, um, very similar vibes. Uh, obviously, the audience is a lot younger, so they might not have as much to spend, uh, but drives cheap traffic, and uh, it's it's good. It's it's very visual, so it's a good pl- uh, product platform fit for us as well. Um, other ones, there's a, a bunch of display ad networks. You have things like Outbrain. We were always experimenting with those. Yeah, inline uh, interstitial placement ad platforms. So there's ad platforms that will place your uh, autoplay videos in articles 
So you're on the Globe and Mail or the New York Times. There's an interstitial that pops up as you're scrolling down. It's a self-play video. Um, but once you scroll anymore, it stops playing. So you really, it's actually a pretty good user experience. Um, and those placements for us are, they're more expensive. Um, I think they're probably better for brands that have higher price points. Yep. You know, we're, at the end of the day, we're a $20 product. So, you know, it not every, every channel works for us because it just costs too much. Yeah. And, and I, I would imagine you guys are tracking CPA, right? At the end of the day, like depending on the channel, you need to back into the CPA target, whatever that might be. Yeah. I mean, your, your core targets for at least e-commerce on, on acquisition through paid performance marketing are the, the, the three the two big numbers we work with are just, you know, what's our cost to acquire the customer and, and what's our net contribution at, at the end of that. So mm-hmm. At the end of the day, after shipping, after fulfillment, after product cost, after the advertising cost, how much of that order do we actually net in profit? Uh, and, and that's a key metric because it really, for even for like seasonal planning. So we're rolling up into Black Friday right now, next week. And that's, it, you know, that's a number we're looking at saying, you know, if we discount this much and we have this many sales, how does that affect our net contribution? And how does that add to our profitability? How price sensitive is the customer? I think it depends on age demographic. Our product's quite mass in the sense that we sell all over the place, all over the world, um, but also like middle America. And it just, everyone's thought of getting a tattoo before. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's something that, that has this kind of mass consumer appeal. And with that comes many people from different backgrounds. So uh, one of them is, you know, class-based. So someone that earns over a hundred thousand dollars a year isn't going to be bothered by that price mm-hmm. difference, but someone who only makes 30, $5,000 a year and then has to pay a bunch of medical expenses on top of that is probably going to take that $2 quite seriously. They're going to be sensitive to it. So we've had a very difficult time sussing out that just because there's so many variables at play in our pricing. Um, at the end of the day, we just look at that net contribution on, on a, a, like a pretty high level basis uh, across many orders to see if uh, a price change affects that enough to to warrant actually dropping it and so you can look at like how does that actually affect our cpa as well right so you know a more expensive product though it might have a higher basket price Mm -hmm. and will net you more money on the first purchase it actually costs you more to acquire the customer as well so your net contribution just goes flat it doesn't really matter so um, at that point it's a call you kind of make the call like would we prefer to convert more customers and pay less for them or, you know, convert less customers and make more. And most startups will say the, 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 the former, because you just want to get it in more people's hands. How do you guys find talent related to, um, say Facebook media buying, for example? Uh, my, our, our performance marketing lead is an old friend of mine. So that one was easy, but, um, <laughs> okay. if I were to, if I were to start again, I would look through agencies. So I would find people who've worked at agencies before or who've worked at Facebook themselves um, on the account teams. Uh, Because at the end of the day, those people do this for a living. And though they haven't maybe worked in uh, a startup before, uh, you know, that's what they they, they help startups with that anyway. So I would look for an agency or someone who actually works at Facebook. In terms of driving repeat purchases, and the percentage of, say, net new customers versus repeat buyers. Um, what's the breakdown between the two? And, and how do you guys go about driving repeat buyers? It's obviously a very important metric um, to be driving repeat purchases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we approach it right now is 
just having great customer support is really key. You know, we've seen positive impacts on on contribution and just having better customer service because that goes into reviews. And you'll see a lot of reviews mention customer service. So our reviews are hosted on Trustpilot. You can go read them. And those are important to us because we can place them across the site. For us as well, our InkFam, which is our loyalty program, is important for, for retention, uh, at least for driving a lot of repeat traffic and people coming back to the site. You know, having some sort of way to reward them is, is pretty awesome and, and, and put them through the proper flows. Um, uh, you know, other things that obviously help are paid performance re- remarketing. So remarketing to your pool after a pixel has been dropped on, on your first visitor purchase, putting them into segmented email lists. So having email lists composed of your, your top performing customers and treat them differently than you would treat your, your uh, worst customers. Um, and you can drive higher retention out of them by just focusing more on them and putting them through more integrated marketing flows um, that might cut across both email and messenger uh, or even our Instagram. Yeah, your Instagram's huge for you guys, right? You guys are north of a million followers, are you? Yeah, yeah. The Instagram's doing well for us. How do you determine which influencers uh, you want to approach in terms of some sort of strategic partnership? Yeah, so we have a team that does this now in-house, a two-person team that works in with some oversight from a couple other people on you know, who we should be approaching, how many a week, how does that uh, contribute to our, our revenue and, and site traffic. And in terms of like finding the right people, there's, uh, there's a plethora of different influencer platforms you can find now. There's so many of them. Some allow you to track more than others. I'm not going to say the one we use, but uh, we're pretty happy with the one we're using right now. The downside to all this is uh, you're, they're always at the whim, these platforms of Instagram themselves. So if there's integration with like promotion or discounts or anything through uh, their API, mm-hmm. they're always kind of cutting that back and adding it themselves. So you always run that risk of getting too deep on a platform and then that happening. Um, then you're kind of disintermediated. Then you're back to the back to the drawing board. So yeah, in terms of finding the right people, we found a lot more success in micro influencers rather than macro. Macro being, I'd say, over... I don't know, 50,000 yep. uh, people who make money doing this, quite a bit of money doing this. Uh-huh. We prefer just to send people free product. And if they like it, they'll post it. If they don't, they won't post it. And it feels more organic that way. And I, I don't know, you, you, you pay a lot for, for larger influencers. And Instagram's hard because not a lot of people shop through Instagram. I mean, they, they make the purchasing decision by looking through Instagram, but they don't click through Instagram and then go to purchase very often. Right. It just doesn't happen a lot. Um, and so you just don't see, you can't really define, you can't really justify paying the kind of money you would pay to large influencers if you're a startup, um, because it's hard to actually track the return. If you were a larger brand and you're just looking at brand awareness plays, then sure. But we always have to be more ROI focused. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, speaking of macro influencers on Instagram, they're obviously, um, at risk with some of the recent news that's come out of Instagram cleaning up all of those influencers that paid for fake followers and fake likes and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's another layer that you guys have to navigate through in terms of finding um, which people you want to partner with. Yeah, you can, you can tell though. So I think uh, if you've seen enough Instagram profiles, you have a pretty good gut check on if they have fake followers or not. You could also look at their growth history on their, their follower history. Through What are some of the, the hints for those that don't know? Um, well, one of it's just looking at a lot of accounts and seeing the, 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 the match between their total follower count and their engagement rate. 
And so, you know, obviously you'll get a, a base engagement rate that you're kind of used to seeing, like maybe you're used to seeing 2000 likes on someone who has this many followers, but then you see someone who only has 400, it seems fishy. Uh, so that, that's kind of just intuitive and it's just comes from looking at it a lot. Um, you can also use, I forget the tool's names, but if you just Google like Instagram follower count graph or something, there's tools out there where you can look at people's uh, growth history on Instagram. And if you see distinctive spikes, that's in- indicative of, of them buying followers at those periods of time. Yeah, this crackdown is going to be super interesting. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch. Um, okay, so a couple things stood out to me on your website. So your core values, I won't read all five, but two of them uh, were very interesting. Number one, treating customers like BFFs. Mm-hmm. And the second one, which stood out to me, was practicing sincerity without bullshit. Yeah. Um, awesome, uh, by the way. Love these two. What does living these core values look like for Inkbox? That's a really good question. Uh, the first one, treating customers like BFFs, is like I just mentioned, the customer service piece. Uh, really going the extra mile for them and, and, and treating them like you would want to be treated and, and that you would treat a friend. And um, you see this shift in, in marketing with companies like Glossier. They call it best friend marketing where um, and it's, you see a lot of like female founder companies doing this where they've really honed in on the fact that there's like girl communities out there and they're all friends and you kind of get this, you feel like you're a friend to the brand. And I think that's the future of, of brands is very personal. And so treating customers like BFFs adheres to those tenants, you know, um, being really friendly to them, not clinical sounding, you know, using slang, using emojis, using GIFs. Mm-hmm. Um, being funny, like having a sense of humor with them, never rude, but witty and a little bit, you know, clever, maybe some tongue and cheek in there too. And yeah, we celebrate those successes too. Um, so we'll post in our Slack channels, our Slack general channel, when a customer has a really great experience with customer service. And it's just really nice to see for the team that customers are having a really good time interacting with our team because nothing's worse than, than just having like that negative uh, feeling you get from having a really bad experience with a customer. Basically, we just don't hire anyone with ego, but we like radical transparency and honesty. And so this really comes from my brother and I. We're quite direct. Um, we won't pepper things. Like, we'll be nice, but we won't, um, we won't add bullshit to anything. So um, we won't um, bring any baggage into any discussion. We look at it with fresh eyes every time. Um, and you know, it's never for your own good. It's for the company's good. So really means not confusing your, your ambitions with the, the good of the company overall. Um, but yeah, it all ties back to ego and not hiring people who have you know, ego because ego to me is just baggage. Do you think that character trait that you and your brother have was an advantage or disadvantage when you were going to look for money? Uh, an advantage, I would say. Because then you can suss out people who have ego, and I think ego is not only baggage, but it, it's it's a it's hubris. It's it's uh, it's it's like your Achilles heel. I think for a lot of people, and we've seen companies go under um, people we know because their ego got in the way, and or their staff's ego, you know, their product lead's ego got in the way, and he he just he couldn't work for someone else. You know, it had to be his decision. Um, and we never, from the get-go, wanted to ever hire anyone who would do that to us. Are there certain questions that you you ask 
uh, during the hiring process that help you to discern, say, in, in an hour of meeting somebody, whether or not they've got this Achilles heel? Um, yeah, there's a couple. I mean, not like direct questions, but questions around leadership and how they like to lead and how they like to be led usually can surface these these feelings around ego. Another would be around how they've managed someone in a difficult situation. So we had an interviewer say, uh, you know, I had had this intern and she wasn't doing things the way I wanted them done. And, you know, we had this big argument about it and, and we were like, so how did you solve it? She's like, well, I told her I'm your boss. So you had to listen to me. I'm like, yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not the right answer. <laughs> so that, that's, that's just one example. You get a feeling for how they talk about themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and that could tell you a lot as well. Okay. So here's a quote of how uh, vice has talked about you guys. This was awesome too, by the way. Uh, I'm quoting here, Inkbox is perfect for the person who wants to express themselves, but doesn't know what the fuck they want. Um, <laughs> oh, we can swear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just have to Edit toggle <laughs> the little E on the explicit thing when I, when I publish this interview. So this, is, this, as a business slogan, I think is, is kind of bang on, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, it really hits the core of the self-expression piece, which is is clear across most of our customers. Uh, and <laughs> what the fuck you want? I mean, one of the one of the taglines we run with internally is commitment issues, us too. Yeah. Um, you know, not everyone w- knows what they want. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, everyone's like that. We have a lot of customers who have tattoos who know what they want, but they just know they don't want this. What are some of the most interesting or weirdest tattoos you've seen people customize? Oh man, that's a loaded question right there. There's <laughs> this must make there's a great water cooler fodder though. Yeah, there's this. there's a lot. Um, okay, so I'm not going to go into specifics, but I, I can talk about an incident we we've had multiple times where is where do we draw the line on what we'll make for you, right? Mm-hmm. So our, our our terms of service state it can't be hate. You know, anything up to hate is fine, but once it crosses the line into being something that deals with hate in any form, that is something we will not print. Um, and that's just our company. So, um, you know, we've had people submit swastikas and stuff. And wow. Obviously, we don't print those because those are those are hate. Um, not often. Thank goodness. There's just been a couple. Um, but we have seen ones um, where they've they've really blur the line between hate and kink. What we'll do is we'll send out just a really you know, nice email saying, hey, like, here's our policy around tattoos. This one was flagged because, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's filled with hate. Um, could you please give us a description of, of this tattoo and, 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 and why you're wearing it? Um, and um, usually people respond. And, and in most cases that we've seen, they've, they've dealt with kink. And, you know, it's been someone in a relationship who this was their thing. Um, and they wanted to wear it for their partner. Man, we've seen so much stuff. We've had some beautiful stories too, where the tattoos have saved people's lives, which sounds crazy when you, I, I would never have thought that was a thing that would happen with our product, but uh, you know, it sits in people's skin for, for a week or two and you can't get rid of it. So there's this power that comes from it for some people. And um, we've had instances where you know, girls who were you know, like a young 14, 13, 14 year old who was even uh, seven year olds. We've had, you know, messages about this, which is kind of sad having, um, you know, struggling with depression or bullying and, or anxiety. And then, you know, buying our ink or wearing a custom tattoo that sends something like breathe or it'll get better or something like that. And um, it, they, they credit with really helping them get through 
those few weeks that were really hard for them. So those are really beautiful ones. Um, we also see a lot, we've seen a couple around, um, like memorial ones are always really sad um, mm. and, and beautiful at the same time because you hear the story and they're usually tragic. Uh, and and um, yeah, I, I'm not going to go into details. I think if you actually check out our blog, there's um, there's been a couple blog posts we've made about some of these stories that are beautiful and sad and some that are funny. Yeah, no, I mean, it's such an interesting part of the business. You, you probably don't go into it sort of eyes wide open thinking about what could be right in this regard. Um, but the sort of human element of this whole thing, uh, related to these stories, um, my, my brain also immediately thought of, um, just partnerships with charitable organizations for causes, right. To somebody gets a tattoo for say breast cancer awareness. And then, you know, there's a huge movement toward ink box and all of a sudden you've got, uh, thousands of orders for this particular tattoo. Let's say, have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, we do that. We actively do that. One of our other core values is support others, uh, mm. both internally and externally. And uh, we've worked a lot with a, a hospital here in Toronto, a children's hospital called Sick Kids. It's Canada's largest children's hospital. And they're, they're wonderful. Um, and they have a lot of programming now around getting startups involved in the community and giving back. And so we've done several things with them. One, not a collection but through this organization called the Upside Foundation, which allows startups to donate a percentage of their equity to a charity of their choice. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's all upside because they only get it on liquidation. And so you win, they win, the, the charity wins. It's awesome. And uh, so we, did, we, we donated to them um, through SickKids, so they own a percentage of our company now. Um, but we also did a big collaboration with them where we got a few of the sick kids to design tattoos that we we sold. And all the proceeds, of course, went back to the hospital. And I think we raised a pretty good amount of money for them. So it was, it was really rewarding to see that. That is very cool. Where do you want to point listeners to in the last few minutes to learn more about Inkbox? Yeah, if you want to learn more about us, check out Inkbox.com. Uh, check us out on Instagram for more of the community feel. Check out our designs. We release anywhere from 40 to 80 designs a week now. You can customize your own. If you're artistically inclined, you can use our freehand ink, which is more of like a gel you can draw on your skin with. And beyond that, just yeah, dive deep, read some news about us, read the reviews. Um, you know, we're, we, we put it all out there. All right. For those wanting to express themselves without regret, um, definitely a great way to go. Um, Tyler, this has been great. Congratulations, man, on all that you guys have done and uh, wishing you the best from here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. 
So keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.